Hey guys, welcome to episode 254 of the podcast with my guest, Jesse Thorne. I have known Jesse for a very long time. And uh, as I mentioned in the podcast, he's one of the first people I reached out to when I started doing the Boys of Summer series, but he is uh, so busy doing amazing things in his own right and um, schedule wise in terms of things aligning. Uh, it just hadn't happened yet. So I'm really, really glad that we um, made it happen. Thank you guys for really, were you like killing yourselves over the fact that I it's been a day later than my podcast normally comes out. For those of you who care, thank you for uh, waiting a day. Um, and uh, shout out wise, I just want to thank Amanda and Matt uh, for your emails. Kyle, you know what you're sending and I really appreciate it. And it's so sweet and unnecessary and delightful. Uh, so thank you, Rachel. I'm sorry we missed each other at Outside Lands. And then I also want to send a very happy birthday wish to Katie, who is Shailene's girlfriend. I know it's her 20th birthday. And uh, I'm now I feel like like a radio DJ uh, circa the 80s. I want you guys to go out and couples skate together on some roller skates, which actually kind of pertains to the episode you're about to listen to with Jesse. So enjoy that. And I hope everybody's having a great summer. I will uh, talk to you soon. Now entering Nerdist.com. This is, I will say this, this, (laughs) I don't want to say this is the saddest remote interview in terms of us being probably 25 minutes apart from each other in Los Angeles. (laughs) It's not like you're at your, and I know you have one, but it's not like you're at your chateau in Switzerland just at the moment. No, I didn't. It's not like I'm, yeah, that's, that's very true. I mean, I just... To be fair, I just got back from my seaside palace in Cozumel, but that's right. I am here in Los Angeles now. I forgot that you had that seaside palace. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, is I was coming from Geneva. Uh, I had uh-huh. to drop off some bearer bonds with my banker, <laughs> but I was routed through Cozumel so I could do some snorkeling. Would you maintain that you remain the most ostentatious? podcast network and general fun provider yeah no, absolutely <laughs> sure <laughs> okay yeah we're basically I mean, I know. basically the operation i'm running here is the podcast equivalent of master p's episode of cribs <laughs> my children have gold-plated tiny <laughs> land rovers oh that's so reassuring it's so terribly reassuring uh no, listen, I will say that you have a beautiful, you have a beautiful office. Um, I mean, I don't want to tell tales out of school, but I think many people on other podcast networks would agree with me when I say you have a favorite uh, recording situation with a beautiful view of uh, Los Angeles, California. And um, a weird, sad box. So great. To be fair, also a weird, sad <laughs> box that I bought on Craigslist. There's a there, you know. Listen, there are ups and downs to every recording area. Um, <laughs> yours can get a little toasty, but to know that just on the other side of those doors uh, is a is a beautiful view really helps. It really helps. That's true. 
Um, what was your, now this is a question that I, I, uh, I'm very curious about and I've always wanted to ask you and not thought through, but, um, because you started doing this stuff so young, uh, comparatively speaking, what was, did you have like a makeshift, I do this in my closet kind of a scenario when you first started doing recording and broadcasting? Well, I mean, when I, when I first started doing it, it was on college radio. So while the station had equipment that was held together with bailing wire and twine um <laughs> it, it was like a real radio station it's weird like the radio station that we were on and it was me and my friend jordan with whom i still work and our friend gene indeed um the three of us were on this radio station kzsc in santa cruz that is just everything you imagine when you imagine a community radio station like there was a <laughs> long period where we came on before a guy uh, who was an old man who lived in the woods? Um, who had just wait? Played... Have you been keeping up with Twin Peaks? Because uh, I have many strong feelings about that. Many of them not positive, but there is a whole Doctor Jacoby is now in the woods broadcasting. So oh, I, wow. I actually have a, I have an I have an actual vision of a person doing this now I'll that tell matches uh, coming in from out of the woods. I'll tell you this: I don't know if the new Twin Peaks is broadcasting in Smellovision. Uh, but Bob, <laughs> but Bob, the old man who lived in the woods, was stank. He was a smelly dude. Oh, Bob! <laughs> smelled so terrible. Well, it's Santa Cruz. Was he like a organic farmer? No, he lived under a tarp on a platform. <laughs> and oh my, somewhere on campus. Like the <laughs> thing about the UC Santa Cruz campus is, the l- terms of the land grant said that they could only develop. I don't remember, 5 or 10% of the total land. So there's a lot of sort of semi-wilderness on the UC Santa Cruz campus. It's not a monstrous campus, but it's pretty big. And there's a lot of just straight-up forests. And so people live in the forest because it is the perfect confluence of venue, like opportunity, and actor. Like there is both no more, there's no campus with more forests and there's no campus with more people who would choose to live in a forest. Uh (laughs) It really is a perfect confluence. You're absolutely right. But he was the only grown up that I knew. I mean, like I knew other like 20 year olds who lived in the woods and they would sneak into the dorms to take a shower. He was probably 70. But anyway. (laughs) What what was his show like? It was so weird. We would get so... (laughs) Basically, I mean, you can imagine what the politics of community radio in Santa Cruz are like. Um, Super, super right wing. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, it's weird. Like, it's almost a circle. Like, uh, I don't know if you saw that thing that was going around the Internet that was things that are for sale both on Gwyneth Paltrow's website, Goop, and in the InfoWars store. (laughs) Um, but like it does almost come back like it all like you keep going if you keep going to the right and keep going to the left on the other end of the circle they meet up at fluoride in the water supply Uh (laughs) and so we would get we would get like so me and Jordan and Gene were doing this dumb comedy show slash interview show and we would get calls because the KPFA news the Pacifica uh, radio news came on after us and then bobbed a bolt. So it was like the it was like the super left wing hour and a half block that came on right after us. So we would start getting angry calls at like the KPFA news came on at like 530 or something. And we'd get start getting angry calls at like 526 
from people uh-huh. with, with from from like uh, enraged liberals with watches that were a couple minutes fast. <laughs> and then they the KPFA news often didn't start on time, so we would be sitting there vamping or playing a record or something and taking angry phone calls and explaining that it wasn't that we were uh, trying to silence the uh, Pacifica News. It was that the Pacifica News was starting late again. Oh, no. Um, so anyway, yeah, it was like Bob DeBolt's show was called The Politics of Social Reality. And I would love to say that he was a nice dude, but he was actually kind of a mean dude. And um, it Well, he was, probably wasn't getting the best sleep if he was just yeah, sort of on pine needles. That's true. And I think he didn't, he lacked some social skills. But he, mm-hmm. he, he lacked certain social refinements, shall we say. Um, <laughs> but like he would play like, old Angela Davis speeches and stuff. I mean, like, it wasn't really... It wasn't really the content of his show. It was more that it just fomented this kind of anger about fluoride that would end up directed at us because we were doing the dumbest show you could... I mean, like, we literally... A recurring segment on our show, this is real, was we would play, like, a sound effects record of, like sort of sci-fi space sounds and then mm-hmm. a sound effects record of whale song and we would say that we were talking to a space whale <laughs> like that is the level of sophistication that we were doing before people were hearing about how 9-11 was an inside job right and the audiences were not happy with each other but like one of the crazy things about the station is as much as it was a station where like a dog could get a show um, as long as it was a reggae show, uh, <laughs> then it, it was a real radio station. Like it really, the Monterey Bay area is a couple of million people and it really had a real signal. So, and it was the ideal place to have a station that was this crazy mix of stuff because people in Santa Cruz are cool. Like they're into weird stuff genuinely. Yeah. And so the fact yeah. that it was a ge- actual powerful station and it actually had this crazy mix of stuff but it was in the one place in America where that would really work. It meant that we were going into this weird shack in the woods to broadcast, but people were really hearing it and it was a real thing and so it was a kind of training ground for us. But Oh god, absolutely. It wasn't until years later that we that I, after my co-hosts both, both moved to L.A. Uh, to work in show business and I moved back to San Francisco, I ended up um, on a station in Santa Cruz that had a board operator. Um, like, you know, when you're on the radio, you need someone to move the knobs and someone mm-hmm. has to be there to receive emergency broadcast signals if one happens. Mm-hmm. You have to have someone physically present. And on the KZSE, the old station, there was n- there was there was no one besides me to do that, so I had to physically be there. And then I moved to a different station that had a board operator, so I could record the show at home and just email it to them, uh, or send them. Actually, at the beginning, mail them a CD uh, because there could be someone else to sit there on the board, and then I didn't have to drive back and forth to Santa Cruz. So that's when the true sort of underneath a blanket at my desk with a microphone and a giant CRT monitor uh, era right. began. Gotcha. Yeah, I wasn't sure if, first of all, I just want to quickly say about Bob's show that it sounds like, based on the fact that you mentioned that he would play old Angela Davis speeches, that his show could also have been called Back in My Day. 
Like it's still just a grumpy old man. I feel like I feel like talking Bob about was, how things used to be. Bob was so old that like he was like How old was he? There Sorry, was, okay. I know my cue. So we used to play there was this National Lampoon record that had this Bill Murray bit where he's on a non he's doing a pledge drive on a community radio station. And there's mm-hmm. this part of it where he lists all the different things that they have on the station. He's like, we're the only show with a children's hour. We get the kids in here to do a show for the kids. And he's going through this list of things. And there's like, and we have the international workers of the world. All the old wobblies come in and they've got their show. And I always thought like, he's just describing our station. Like, I feel like Bob was so old that his time was, his time was well before like the late 1960s, early 1970s when Angela Davis was at her peak. (laughs) He was like fighting Pinkertons in like 1933 (laughs) and like organizing metal drives Uh, to elect Roosevelt or something. uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Oh, Bob. Well, you know, if you're near some of those um, magical vortexes, vortices, I don't, I listen, I'm not totally sure what the plural for vortex (laughs) is because I'm not from Santa Cruz, but it's possible that it slows down the aging process just enough that you can comfortably live in the woods on campus and also be like 110 years old. Yeah, I bet, I bet. I wouldn't put it past him. I I can imagine an alternate universe in which Bob DeBolt is still alive and still doing his show at like 97. Well, we actually have a surprise for you. Bob, we're going to patch in Bob. We're going to patch him in. Oh, he just, oh, he's just, oh, oh, Bob, is that you? (laughs) Bob, I hear a lot of angry growling. I have to assume that's you. Yeah, that was Bob DeVolts. That was his his signature catchphrase. What a a cameo. What a cameo. Um, Okay, so so that does answer my question. And uh, by the way, I have to say, that that is a mark of a true fellow podcast host, which is that you can be tangential and still bring it back around <laughs> to the original question. Um, uh, which, but but I I think I sort of had imagined that maybe here's here's why I'll tell you why because I've known you for so long and I knew you when you were at Santa Cruz doing the Sound of Young America, uh, and you were already so. Um, you already had the sort of prodigious quality of like, wait, he's how old? Wait, he's accomplished how much already? Um, that I think I assumed that, that you know, heading to Santa Cruz, to UC Santa Cruz and doing the radio show there was in fact a mere continuation of like you being 10 and being sort of like a, like a Harriet the spy of the audiophile world where maybe uh, you were carrying around, carrying around a little digital, well, obviously not digital, like a, but you're carrying around a little tape recorder and like interviewing people. Like my, I interviewed my neighbors about their vegetables. Like a Jake Fogelnest situation where I was 14 and I, I had so. a show on MTV. I guess that is what I'm suggesting, but more folksy, like not MTV, but you know, they're like, the neighborhood clubhouse. I found out, I just did this show, The Turnaround, and uh, where I interviewed interviewers, and I was surprised. I feel like several of them literally did that in their childhood. I want to say Ray Suarez told me that he used to go around and talk to people on a tape recorder. Um, Another person who did that is uh, Dr. Katz. Jonathan Katz. Oh, sure. Jonathan sure. Katz still does that, actually. Um, he still, like, records people and does... I mean, he's a compulsive bit-doer. 
Um, well, sure. But like he still records people all the time. But he that started when he got like a you know a wire recorder in 1962 or something. Oh man! So you didn't have so so for you when you ended up doing the Sound of Young America. What brought you to that point? Did you have sort of an interest in broadcasting going into school, or was it more of a thing where you got there and saw like? Everything is in eighties movies to me. Like those are your choices are you you either were the neighborhood uh interviewer or you were like walking, like striding past a bulletin board in the middle of a montage and saw <laughs> like a flyer saying like help broadcasters needed for the local station and you like thoughtfully grasp like like shrug like why not and grab the flyer and then continued on in your montage i guess those are the only choices i'm offering you. it wasn't so far off of the second choice so basically okay. what happened right. is i went to an arts high school and did theater and where was that that was in san francisco san francisco school of the arts right. yep. uh uh home of um uh, who uh i was my Dean classmate. Starve, okay. you're the worst. Um, I love Aya. Uh, lots of brilliant people went before me there. Uh, Did Colin go there? Colin I, Hanks? I, I don't think so. I think he. I think they lived in the suburbs somewhere. But Aisha Tyler went right. there. Uh, Margaret Cho went there. Sam Rockwell went there. Um, so anyway, I had. Is gone, it the kind of school? Is it? The, oh yeah, I know. Please go ahead. So I had gone. I had done theater three to eight hours a day every day for my entire high school. And I knew that I wanted to be a performer and do the arts for a living in some way. But I also knew that I was not good looking enough to do it on the basis of being good looking. And I (laughs) wasn't talented enough to do it on the basis of acting talent. (laughs) Um, and I had also, I also learned that acting school is sort of has a spectrum that runs between indifferent and hostile to the idea of being funny, (laughs) which was my primary interest. I was not interested in accessing my emotions at all. Uh Uh Um, I have only... Only barely managed to crack open five percent of my emotional window as a thirty-six-year-old. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so I didn't want. I I knew that I I didn't I didn't think I could do acting. And in fact, I took an acting class at Santa Cruz. And the thought that I had was, I had always wondered about that kind of classic idea of like a drama nerd, like a waiting for Guffman or in some high school movie or something because I had Mm -hmm. not had that experience because the people around me were actually really talented, much more talented than I. And none of them were that kind of ridiculous, annoying, giant thing. And then I went to a college acting class and I met all of the people who were the best actor at their (laughs) high school. And I was like, oh, it's these people. I don't want to hang out with these people at all at all like zero percent can i deal with this these people are not particularly talented and you know santa cruz is a 75th tier acting school so Mm. um so i was like this is not my path because i am not good enough and i don't want to do dedicate a big chunk of my life to this so i couldn't do that and i think i was i was like i'm a 
I'm the oldest of millennials or the generation in between millennials and generation X, depending on how you count. And so when I got to college, I was like, I am like the youngest person who was in college and did not have access to the means of media production. So right, right, right. It was still like if you if you majored in film, you still got to use a camera, and partly because it was a public school, but you got to use a camera for the last semester of your senior year. You know, because there were only eight cameras, because right. they could only afford eight cameras. And there was like a weird solemn ceremony involving black robes and torches. Uh, yeah. After which you were finally handed the camera. Exactly, and there was no, yeah. you know, there was no let's go out and shoot a documentary with a camera we bought ourselves, and there was no. Yeah television station there was no anything like that so i was in an improv group um and i went on a tour of the radio station my freshman year and i saw them operating the board and what had been what had seemed like a mystical impossible thing to generate a broadcast turned out to be not that complicated for radio <laughs> like radio is you were really... like wait that's just no- people are just turning knobs willy-nilly you just turn knobs well and you barely have to turn any knobs i was just like wait uh-huh. so all it is is literally i had this thought that has stuck with me ever since so just up is louder and down is quieter <laughs> like oh yeah sure i can i can figure yeah. that out and yeah. um and right around then, I also, um, I bought, This American Life put out a comic book. And I get, uh, I get migraine headaches very chronically. And um, so often, and, I w- and the medication that I take makes me re- too tired and dopey to do much. So I spent a lot of time in my dorm room kind of lying in bed listening to real audio streams of This American Life because I was too zonked to do anything else and I couldn't really look at anything because I had a migraine so um so I, I bought- think actually at the time this American Life's uh, slogan was this American Life colon when you can't handle more yeah exactly Got it. <laughs> now these days I feel like the slogan of this American Life is uh, this American Life colon we're testing what you can handle yeah yeah like here's a story about an ha- autistic child that attacks its parents um, yeah Good for them, right? I guess, yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I bought this American Life's comic book about how to make radio, and I literally borrowed my mom's tape recorder, which was a – it was from the 70s. It was like a giant console. It was a portable tape recorder, but it was the size of a stereo component tape recorder. Like it was the size of a attache case. Mm-hmm. And I made a strap for it out of duct tape because it didn't have a strap anymore. Um, and then I went around and uh, tried to make some radio pieces on my computer because the one thing that I that I did get the advantage of in the digital revolution was I was just young enough that my computer that I already had just to do my homework could handle audio editing. So. Mm-hmm. I could, and I was, and it was the same thing as going to the radio station. When I started audio editing, I was like, it seems like this should be much harder than it is. This is basically word processing. So I just started making stuff and I went and just did a show. I mean, that's, yeah, I, I, I think, I think. I, I don't know if it's that I wish that more, I mean, maybe it's more true now, but again, I just think that there are, it's 
I'm so happy that you discovered that things were doable as young as you did, because I think for <laughs> many of us, and I also can relate to the, the the pragmatism that you felt about acting, because I feel like I didn't have in any way a similar environment to what you had. Like for me going to a public high school and theater, you know, I would say comfortably, and this is no insult to anyone in the class, like 85% of the kids that were taking drama were doing it because it wasn't something harder. Right. You know, I mean, it, it definitely was like a free period for most of the people who were in that class. I, I feel, I feel fairly comfortable saying, and then there were a handful of people like me who, you know, were into it, but were also still like, kind of like not you know not like this is my passion you guys like you better take me seriously now it was still like yeah we're kind of blowing this off but like doing plays is fun um and so I can't it's it's extremely intimidating for me to imagine going to a high school in a place like San Francisco surrounded by like real talent and kind of the sophistication that I imagine comes with being a teenager in San Francisco that you don't get from being a teenager in Tucson. Um, And I still felt like I was getting all the leads and I still was like, I'm not, this is, doesn't make any sense to try to pursue as a profession. I mean, but I also, the thing that was really cool about it to be frank was as much as I went, and you know, I didn't go there thinking I'm going to become an actor. I went there thinking, in a way, sort of like those people who were in your class in Tucson. I went there thinking, if I go to Mission, which was my neighborhood high school, I'm going to get my ass beat every day for my entire high school <laughs> experience because I am too skinny and too white uh, to hold my own in that high school. And yeah. so I was like, I'm going to go to the arts high school because at least there people aren't getting beat up there for being uh, artsy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> They're being getting beat up for not being artsy enough. But the gift if you like hip hop, so you could have gotten beat up. Yeah, exactly. The gift, but the gift was of being at that school is no matter what the talent people had or how much people aspired to do it professionally, and those things varied to some extent. I mean, most people at least had some talent because you had to have some talent to get in, but. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was a variety of different levels of aspiration. Not everybody wanted to be Aya Cash and be a theater and television actress. But the cool thing was everybody wanted to be there. And I think the yeah. difference between being in a school where people are there because they have to and people and one where people are there because they want to is pretty huge. So that was yeah, the greatest gift. And like nobody I knew, like when I went to college – because I went to school in California, I met kids from L.A. who, even kids who worked in the entertainment industry. I mean, I went to college with a guy who was on the secret world of Alex Mack, you know? It was like, (laughs) huh, people actually have jobs in this? Like, it was still a complete mystery black box to me. You know, when you go to theater school, you're taught that you're just going to go work in dinner theater for the rest of your life. Um, Right. (laughs) Which is fine. Uh, But, like... I I got to I got to see like what it was like to actually grow up with. I mean, my co-host Gene, his parents were wrote on Hercules. You know what I mean? Oh wow! And yeah. Xena a little bit, but mostly Hercules. Uh-huh. <laughs> and like his neighbor was Brian Cranston. You know, and he did yeah, grow up in a pretty amazing. regular. He didn't grow up in a fancy neighborhood. This was pre Malcolm in the Middle, but sure. like. But, like, his neighbor was a working actor, you know? And that was a normal yeah. thing to him. Whereas for me, it was like a thing from space. 
But the Absolutely. advantage that I did get out of the arts high school was being in a special place where everybody cared. Yeah, that is huge. Did you? And you said that you you were not particularly adjacent to comedy lovers when you were going to that school, but then you joined an improv group in college. Did that feel uh, in some way? Because obviously you were doing sketch as well in college because you did our festival um, in the very, very early days. And so was that? did that have a coming home kind of feeling to it when you got involved in improv? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think really it was about my friends Jordan and Gene that I did the show with. I mean, we had lots of great and talented um, improv colleagues. In fact, Jordan ran into one of our old improv buddies and she went to Juilliard and is on like every television show that shoots in New York now. And we were like, oh, we had no idea. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was cool. She's like, oh yeah, I play Willem's Def- Willem Dafoe's wife on this and you know, whatever. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I I'm making oh that up, but it was it was someone's <laughs> wife. I can't remember. But she's a she's a full time working actress, um, and uh, you know was very talented at the time. But like for me, it was like I got lucky because I met Gene my freshman year, and then I was Jordan's RA my my sophomore year, and they mm-hmm. are remain two of the funniest people I've ever known in my life. I mean, I'm sure you have a similar experience. I mean, uh, you know your your lifelong business partners are friends from college. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like, but, but the main, th- the things that I got out of that were like, these people are really, truly spectacularly funny. Like funny enough that I honestly believe they're funnier than me and funny enough that I believe that they could be professionally funny. That was one right. thing. Like I totally believed it. Like I was like, oh yes, these people certainly can do this. And the other thing was, Especially Jordan, you know, as talented as he was and as good of a pal of mine as he was, you know, the reason that we still work together now 18 years later is he was the guy who I worked with in the sketch group, in our improv group, on our radio show, everything else that we've ever done together. He was the guy who always showed up. He was the guy who always pulled his weight he was the guy who never complained. Um, you know, it wasn't like he was the talented guy and we everyone else had to baby him because he was so much more talented right. than us. Right. Like I always end up being the grown up in any endeavor that I pursue by mm-hmm. by Matt, by you know, just because of my personality and constitution. And Jordan was the guy that could match me and like never never was a fuck up, always cared, always did mm-hmm. what he had to do. And Jordan grew up in Orange County and had no connection to show business at all. But, you know, when he graduated, he figured out what you're supposed to do to get into show business, and he did it, you know? And yeah. it was hard work and took a long time. Um, yeah. And it worked. And I never doubted that it would work for him because he was so talented and because he was willing to shoulder the load and even when it did take a long time it was like yes but but it's coming it'll happen it's coming it's working you know that's a really that's that is a really kind of extraordinary thing to be right next to as you're pursuing your own endeavors to see somebody that you you've known and believed in go go to have that closeness to someone for that duration and really see 
that happening. I feel that way, not just about my partners, but about my former sketch partner, Gabe Diani too, like him and mm-hmm. his partner edit, just being those like living alongside one another in Los Angeles and seeing each other and working on stuff together, but also watching that hard work happen. And that, that sort of like work ethic, which to your point does not exist and does not exist for people who stumble into some kind of success at, you know, however it's defined for whatever that thing is at the moment um, without having done that. And I think that's a thing that, you know, you re- you can really watch someone's, enthusiasm flag when they're like but wait I'm still but like I'm doing all the right things and it's taking this amount of you know that whole sort of like don't try not to compare your timeline to someone else's in this city because it's just it would just be like (laughs) constantly infuriating and discouraging it completely destroys you but yeah I mean like when I when people ask me like oh what do I do to you know, I'm trying to make become a creative success or like carve space out in my life. And I used to like literally do lecture tours of talking about that. Yeah. One of the things that I said was that I would tell people is it makes a big difference to work with other people who will keep you accountable and to whom, you know, to whom you have responsibilities and from whom you can gain experiences. But the people who don't show up, um, and the people who don't handle their own shit, um, they're not worth, you, you don't need to take care of them and be their mom and yeah. guide them through it because it's not, you have your own stuff to worry about. Find the people, yeah. find the people who show up and care and give as much as they take. Um, yeah. you know, even if, even if you have to leave somebody, even if it means you lose somebody that you think is really talented, um, mm-hmm. you know, like you can find ways to narrow the scope of your work with them so that it's not a, <laughs> so that it's not a vampire on you. But like, um, you know, like the thing that will get you through it is, is working with people who also care and who also are willing to put one foot in front of the, uh, in front of the other when the path isn't entirely clear, you know? Um, Absolutely. and I'm very, very grateful uh, I'm very, very grateful to Jordan, who's worked with me for so long, and like we're still working on new and different stuff. Um, you know, and it's the same. You know, I've also now worked with John Hodgman for ten years, and yeah. John is the same way. Like I, I don't just think John is talented. I also personally admire him, and know that he cares as much as I do, and he shows up when he says he's going to. Um, you know, I mean, it, it may just be that we're all, uh, some version of, uh, uh, John calls it and his, he's, John's got a new book coming out and he calls it, the uh, um, only child afraid of conflict, super smart narcissists club. Um, <laughs> Uh, God, I'm really going to enjoy this book as an only child who is super afraid of conflict and feels like the world revolves around me for better or for worse. Yeah, like, uh, but it's possible that that's what it's about partly. But um, uh, but mostly, I think, you know, we all care and work hard and show up, you know? I mean, it's like we were doing yeah. sketch comedy shows and it's like, if you're not showing up for a rehearsal, how are we going to do a show for 200 people? You know, sure. if you're not willing to go put out, put up signs 
how much do you actually care about this thing? Um, Absolutely. Because, like, I really want to do it. Like, that's why I'm doing it. I don't want to... I don't want to do a shitty job and fuck up, you know? Right. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> really, I'm, you don't? Well, I mean, like, a lot of my, a significant amount of my career has been driven by, for good and ill, but not insignificantly for good, by my, I just don't want to, like, put myself out there in a half-assed bullshit way and look dumb and f- come off like an asshole. Um, yeah. Like a significant portion, by the way, explicit tag on this episode. I apologize. Um, oh, uh, it's <laughs> there every episode. Don't worry. Okay. So like, I don't but, think I've ever, I don't think I've ever skated past that, that sticker. But like one of the reasons that I gained the skills that I have in doing radio is because I had to go on the air every week. You know, I mean, I'm a real perfectionist and I get creatively frozen as much as anyone else does. But one of the things that taught me to just make something and then make another thing and then make another thing and hope that then the second thing's better than the first thing and the third thing's better than the second thing is that we always had to go on the air live. There was no other choice. And so if we didn't prepare something, we were going to look like dicks. Yeah. Um, And so we prepared something because we were scared of looking like dicks. Right. <laughs> but but that having been said, our reaction to our fear of looking like dicks was always to plow forward rather than to pull back. And I think some people, some people's natural inclination is to pull back. Um, and the fact like, that oh, we, we'll just stop doing this. This has gotten, yeah, like this has gotten intimidating or. Yeah. Know, or a kind of like, we'll just... or a kind of like, I'm too cool to try attitude. I mean, I remember in the early days of the UCB in LA, there was a lot of comedy that had that tone to it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, there was tons of brilliant comedy as well. Um, I'm not painting with a broad brush of, of everyone, but there was a lot of people who were kind of not committing to what they were doing because in not committing, they could they could stay above the fray. And then if it didn't work, they're still they were they they didn't care about it in any way. And mm, absolutely. That stuff doesn't uh, that's I don't have no interest in that. I just yeah. don't I just don't have time for it. I'm actually trying to do this, you know? <laughs> like Were you like that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, were you were you like that before like when you were in high school despite the fact that maybe it wasn't um the stuff that you were engaging in wasn't necessarily the perfect fit yet did that extend through till kind of, like through high school in everything that you were doing even if you kind of suspected that maybe it wasn't the end game for you? Hell no. I was so scared. I was so okay. scared. I was so scared of looking like a turkey acting because I was not very good at it. And being scared at it, being scared of it reinforces doing a bad job because a big part yeah. of the job is being open and engaging and sort of diving in, committing, right? Right. Right. And I was scared to do that. And I did a bad job. And like, you know, I took all these dance classes. And I mean, you've met me. Uh, the audience hasn't, but. <laughs> You'll be shocked to learn it's not my strength. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, I would get called out by teachers and stuff. Um, but there were some places where I really... And, you know, my academic career also, I should say, like I was a pretty poor student and um, most of my academic career was marked by teachers identifying me as the person they most wanted to be a star in the class and then being disappointed by me because I was a fucker. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and, yeah. but there were some people in, 
my high school that that just let me be myself and like care about things that I cared about. Um, we had I'm, Teresa, my wife, who went to high school with me, sometimes tells me about how she first got a crush on me because I would swear a lot in English class. <laughs> and <laughs> we had this we had this great teacher named Mr. Crawford, Philip Crawford, and he was like a student teacher, and he was kind of like. A, uh, he wasn't that he wasn't that big, but other than not being that big, he was kind of like a leather bear, um, <laughs> like a sort of like '90s alternative. I mean, this was the late '90s, so um, yeah. like a '90s alternative uh, bear. Like he was really into like uh, love and rockets and like great, uh, great uh, girl groups from the '60s as a text uh-huh. and um, horror movie like Carrie. He was really into uh-huh. teaching Carrie, like it, all this kind of like uh, 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 women's study stuff and queer study stuff from 1993, which was great, you know when great. he was getting his degree and all that stuff. And his attitude towards me basically was like, "Yeah, do do your thing, Jesse. Whatever, you know. Like I don't have, I don't need you to be the special star of academics, and I don't need you." And I'm not going to make try and make you be like me. Just like do your thing, whatever. It's cool. And uh, we'll just enjoy it. And I appreciate that you contribute to class, you know. And yeah. we had a playwriting teacher who was the same way. Like I, I, that was the first time I ever like wrote something funny. And I had had an English teacher, an AP English teacher who wrote, um, who wrote on a paper that I turned in, I'm concerned that you may take nothing in life seriously. And I oh. and I had to have a parent teacher meeting with him. And it was a big deal. Talk about painting with a broad brush. Yikes. I know. And he meant it too. Like he was like you you're throwing your life away basically. <laughs> and mm. whereas I had this playwriting teacher named Kent uh, who was a professional? I was wondering what the what the what the like uh, the ratio of talking st- calling someone by their first name versus calling someone Ms. or Mister was in the so, performing arts school. Yeah, the teachers you called Mister and Mrs. The artists in residence you mostly called by their first name. So, okay, gotcha. so Mr. Rayher ran the theater department, uh, but Kent was the playwriting teacher. And uh, gotcha. Yeah, so Kent. Kent was a dramaturg at the Magic Theater in San Francisco, which is a new, as you probably know, but the audience wouldn't, is a new plays theater. A pretty good, a nationally yeah. known new plays theater. Reputable for sure. Yeah. Premieres, et cetera. Yeah. And he, I wrote some, I wrote a funny thing for a playwriting exercise and he gave me a good grade on it. And I had never been, I had never gotten positive feedback from a teacher about something funny like it it had like you write something funny for anything and you get negative feedback about it in school right (laughs) uh and so like literally it occurred to me in that class even more than any acting class where you know there's not really a lot of comedy the only comedy we really did was literally commedia dell'arte Right. Um, but we had you, dip, a cl- you must have dipped a toe into Shakespeare's comedies, which a when you're a bit. high school student, you're like, this isn't comedy. Yeah. That, that's like all you get, though. Like, that's like you're, yeah. when you're a high school student, you're like, I guess I'm going to do Shakespeare comedy because it's the only uh-huh. one I'm allowed to do. It's mostly <laughs> right. just a fucking complicated Elizabethan English saying that French people are frogs. But 
Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll settle for it. Um, but yeah, like I had that in that playwriting class. I don't even remember what it was, but I wrote something that was funny. And uh, the teacher was like, yeah, this is cool. This is funny. And um, it never, like, I was like, really? Oh, cool. Oh, thank you, Kent. And he's like, uh-huh. yeah, good work. You know, like that was, and that meant so much to me. Sure. At the time. I ended, I wrote like a play that like won a city play competition. And it, it was only just because Kent had at some point just been like, yeah, you could write a funny thing. That's great. Good work. Like it wasn't like he like oh. took me under his wing and was like, right, you're, right. you're going to, I'm going to change your life, young man, and get you out of the ghetto or whatever. It was just oh, like, Captain, he was like, Captain. this is a type of person you're allowed to be. <laughs> Yeah. In a yeah, in like a in a in a toss off like loose sort of comfortable way to find out r- rather than like I'm going to hold your hand through this delicate eggshell process of making you a funny genius to yeah. just have someone go like, "Oh cool. Yeah, you're good at this. Also, this is a thing. Yeah. You're welcome." Like what a what a revelation. Yeah, it was great. What a revelation. Um, but anyway, that's a have, very long there, way of yeah. That's a very long way of <laughs> saying, Janet, that when I was acting, I couldn't bring myself to do that. And I think that it was only the fact that being on the radio had to happen every week on with my friends in front of an audience of thousands, an unseen audience of thousands, that I was just like, well, I better try and do this because there isn't a backup besides quitting. Yeah. And I don't want to quit. Do, I'm troubled that I don't know of, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, a radio slash podcast reading of the play that won the competition. <laughs> it troubles me that I don't, I don't know. I don't, think I, I don't think I still have it. I don't think I still have it. I'm, I could. I can't believe I'm going to have to go detectiving on this one so that I can participate in this read-through. <sighs> I definitely, I definitely it. have an eighth grade paper that I wrote about Muhammad Ali, but um, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think I have that play. I don't even remember what it was called, or frankly, I don't remember what it was about. Um, yeah, I just had that recently where my dad told me about this touch. Like it was one of those. I'm, I'm, I'm. It's, it's like an uncomfortable recent memory where my dad was telling me a touching story about how proud he was of me for giving a talk on something that was like sort of a questionable for the audience, like a brave choice for the audience to whom I was giving this talk. And I just, I couldn't like, you know, sometimes with your parents, you just want to sort of fake your way through it. Like, Oh, totally. And I, I just didn't get my game face on fast enough. It was so clear that I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. And we we never got there. Like, I have absolutely no memory whatsoever of this thing. And so we both walked away from that conversation feeling like we were crazy. Like, I walked away feeling I was crazy, and he walked away feeling he was crazy. It was very unsatisfying. <laughs> yeah, I don't... My my parents are such unreliable narrators um, that I, I have no... I mean, I basically, like... My parents divorced when I was three, and they... they I won't say they still hate each other because... I guess they, hopefully, given that they haven't had a reason to talk to each other in 20 years, hopefully <laughs> they still they don't still hate each other. I know my mom sometimes will get mad at my dad, and I'm like, Mom, you you divorced him 35 years ago, like, yeah. Let's, but anyway, 
you know, they used to talk about each other and shit. And, uh, so they were never, <laughs> they were never reliable narrators of my childhood, uh, because right. it was always seen through the lens of this weird conflict that they had with each other. Um, every memory they have of you involves the other one doing something wrong. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Amazing. But the thing Amazing. that I, the thing that I do, the thing that I do feel clear about is like, basically I kind of like cruise through school up until middle school. Like I would just, you know, do my homework while I was getting passed out, um, sort of space out during class or like be in the library. They would send me to the library a lot and I would just read a book in the library I like read. Wait, why would they send you to the library a lot? Just because they didn't think I needed to be in class. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, they were like, yeah, yeah. You're, you don't really need this. Like, they, at one uh-huh. point, they were going to skip me from first grade. I, at, when I was done with kindergarten, they tried to put me in s- third grade. They tried to skip two grades. They wanted to skip two grades, either between right. kindergarten and first grade or first grade and second grade. Maybe it was they wanted to put me from first grade to fourth grade. But anyway... Mm-hmm. My my parents, thank God, were like, no, that's the dumb idea. Um, that's social suicide in terms of your developmental, well, your yeah, non-intellectual it, developmental. I mean, I barely socially developed as it is, like, so <laughs> given the adverse circumstances. But then the alternative, there was no, like, gifted program. So it was like the gifted program or whatever was just like, I don't know, uh, we're going to be working. We're going to be working on this for an hour and you seem to have pretty much settled it. So why don't you go read Misty of Chincoteague? <laughs> Um, so anyway, I had done that and then I went to this really very demanding, fancy, progressive academic private school for middle school where I was like the scholarship kid. And I, that was when I started getting migraines and my migraines, I was missing like literally 15 or 20% of my school days and my whole academic life was a disaster area. And that was before Mm. I had medication that I could take for my migraines. So they really destroyed me. And I was pretty uncomfortable with, like, being the poor kid in the rich kid school and, like, all this different stuff was going on. And at that point, I was – I had this realization that was, like, fuck homework. They can't make me do it. Um, I don't mind a lot of things about school. Like, I actually kind of enjoy a fair amount of the learning that I do. (laughs) And uh, I'll just show up and, like, not – cause pro I never caused problems other than not doing homework um and or like talking back occasionally or something but like I never was like getting in fights or like doing drugs or anything so there was nothing they could pin on me you know so it was like I'll just show up and do whatever I like and then it'll be fine and that kind of eh fuck it attitude uh and did not serve me well in terms of getting good grades or going to a good university um but it did work out in the end it did work out in the end because like what i did in my life was i just found the things that i cared about and enjoyed doing and and worked very hard at them and uh figured out ways for them to work you know was resourceful about that and you know had modest expectations and you know it worked out (laughs) And found the right people to work with, as you mentioned before. Yeah, totally. But like those those uh, couple of experiences in, in high school of affirmation were enough to be like, oh, so there are things there is a there is a part of the world for somebody that's into this kind of thing or that kind of thing or sure. doesn't care about that. It'll be okay. The, the the thing that is amazing about that is that you were already in such a specialized 
artistic yeah. world. <laughs> like the idea, like, like in some other corner of the world where like there just is zero arts budget at all. And, you know, you're just like taking tests to pass to be like good in math, maybe to, to even approach you know, just finding out like there's, there is such a thing as acting. I guess everyone knows that because everyone watches it and enter- is entertained by that stuff. But, but no, um, you're totally it's, right. It's Jen. I mean, like that's like my job is interviewing artists, right? That's a big part of my job. So I've talked to people about their origin stories and I understand that like one of the great privileges of my life is that while my parents had no financial or, and relatively few social resources to offer me, you know, other than, uh, other than the fact that they were both highly educated. Um, You know, I didn't get a lot of social advantage out of my parents in that sense. And and I went to public school and everything. But that having been said, uh, there was, thanks to my parents who both lived completely independent, creative, dynamic lives. I mean, both of my parents went to graduate school when I was a kid. As single parents who had no money. Yeah. Wow. And my father spent his entire career as uh, uh, working in nonprofits and particularly most of his career as a organizer in the veterans peace movement. My mom was a drug dealer, <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> and... Like she owned a store in D.C. at one point and, um, you know, she got a, her degree in Latin American studies and became a junior college professor when I was a teenager. Um, and like there was no question that while I couldn't rely on them to support me at all, zero percent, I could rely on them to support me in doing anything I wanted to do. Like, I could have told mm-hmm. my parents I'm going to become an accountant. They would have been great, be an accountant. Yeah. I could have told Same. my parents I was going to become a drug dealer. They would have been like, well, don't get high on your own supply, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> like, they, they were totally, there was no question, I would, there was no question ever that I was going to go to college. There was no question ever that I would uh, finish college. There was no question ever that when I did that, I would be able, I would be allowed to pursue whatever I wanted to pursue. Um, right. So that was a very great gift that my that my family gave me was the confidence Absolutely. to know that you're to, the permission to know that you could just try and do things in the yeah. world, which I know for a lot of people is what they fight for through their entire adolescence and often in well into That's their right. adulthood is just That's giving right. themselves permission to do or make something. I mean, my, my buddy, um, my buddy, Liz Gilbert. Uh, wrote this book called Big Magic about creativity. And I've talked to her about what her experiences are, um, uh, when, especially when she was doing a lot of touring and stuff around. She wrote uh, the uh, book called Eat, Pray, Love. And when she mm-hmm. toured that book and would talk to people in the crowd about their experiences and how the book affected them. And one of the big things that one of the big things that she learned about from that was the ex- the number of and the extent to which uh, women in America feel like they have to ask for permission to pursue their own goals or to be creative. And, 100%. Um, 
and you know, particularly women who don't have economic advantage and women of color. And so, like, I, <laughs> I feel very lucky that, you know, definitely part of my story is, like, I had parents who always, who f- had to fight to do whatever the fuck they wanted in their lives. Like, really had to, like, give up real things. I mean, my mom went to college and her parents didn't speak to her. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, my dad went to Vietnam to spite his parents. I mean, my dad was a, my dad was a veteran from before they instituted the draft. Um, wow. And, wow. And, you know, then he dedicated his life to peace activism, right? So, like, yeah. these, these things, are, these were things that had tremendous personal costs to them. Whereas I, here I am, I'm a fucking straight white dude. I went to college. I uh, graduated with very little college debt because my dad's a disabled veteran. And uh, I... And and I always assumed that I should be able to do something that I like and care about. I never had to, you know. So, I mean, part of that was that I also always assumed that I would just make $25,000 a year for my entire life and it would be fine. (laughs) Right. Because I had the example of my parents who had never made any money at all but had done okay. Same. You know, had gotten by fine. Um, Yeah. So – you know, I mean, I understand that, that that is a tremendous privilege and the extent to which just getting over that, the fact that that hump was gotten over for me um, is a really big deal. Yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to tear through this mash game so I don't keep you too long. Um, but I do want to quickly say that there is one way in which your life could have been more extraordinary, which is that if you were born in a different century, because of your migraines, you might have been a wizard or a shaman. <laughs> You know, I think uh, they like, would have just pulled you right out of school and put you into like a cave where you would have had visions. They also might have trepanned me, which is to say cut a plug out of my skull, which was like one of the <laughs> top treatments true. for migraines before like the, literally like into oh. the 19th century. God. Oh, God. Help to me. let the demons escape. But that's right. Sincerely. I mean, Janet, like that's a goof, right? But like. When I was 15, uh, a medication called sumatriptan, which is the brand name is Imitrax, got became available in the United States, and it made my migraines go away. Uh, I took it when I got one, and it had very serious side effects for me, like it made me really sleepy, and you know it's still a huge challenge in my life, but. Yeah. The difference between that and two days crying in my room mm. um, was monstrous. And like there is no greater line of demarcation in my life than that line where this medicine got invented that pretty much worked or at least helped a lot. Seriously. Absolutely. And, and so like that is <laughs> – like that is as that is as big an inflection point as there is in my life. And so like – the fact that I'm able to keep the migraine dogs at bay, yeah. like the truth is that if it was a long time ago, had I not become a shaman, I just would have died. Like, yeah. because I would not have been Absolutely. able to find food or whatever four days a week. Yeah. Yeah. So that is crazy to me. Like that is a, that is a amazing, like I, every time someone is railing against the drug industry or whatever, um, I think, oh, fair enough, but. Thank God they fucking invented that pill. 
No, no, no. Understood. I mean, I feel the same way. Like they, they, it's a, it's a, it's a slippery slope, but I can guarantee you I would have been put into some sort of sanitarium that only would have made me more crazy when I was 19 years old. And I would certainly not be alive today. Certainly not be alive or I would be alive, but like I would not have spoken in 20 years. Um, so I, I, I very much, very much relate. Okay. Let me, let me tear through this mash game. Um, I'm going to start with, uh, with a category for you. That is, um, three people, uh, we'll do real people that for one reason or another, whether they are no longer alive or, you know, any other reason, um, that you can think of that you probably would not be able to collaborate with them on something, uh, in your, in your alternate reality mash world, these are three people that you get to collaborate on something with. So these are people that I would want to collaborate with, but would not have the opportunity unless I were in an alternate world. Yeah, yeah. Because with when it comes to you, I wouldn't put it past just about anyone alive now. Um, mm-hmm. Still, that could still be on the table for you. So, but but this is an imaginary playland. So um, you can pick people that it's very unreasonable for you to get to collaborate with. Okay, I'm gonna say. Mike Lee. I'm not even going, I'm not even becoming, well, I'll say Mike Lee, the filmmaker, Mm -hmm. uh, L-E-I-G-H, Branch Rickey, the baseball general manager who signed Jackie Mm -hmm. Robinson, but also did a lot, invented a lot of things about modern baseball teams. Awesome. And... I will say Curtis Mayfield. Great. Who is dead, and I have no musical talent. <laughs> okay, I guess those are two very good reasons. Okay, that is a, that is a phenomenal list. Uh, next category is three uh, foods that in this reality, it could be drinks as well. I'll, I'll, I'll extend it out to all substances, something you would consume that uh, in this reality are maybe not good for you or not good for you in um, gross amounts uh, or are just very hard to get easily. Um, so it could be like this one burrito in the mission, da, da, da. Uh, but it could also be, you know, Oreos, um, cookies, fat, uh, beer, anything like that. Three that in this, this alternate universe uh, mash place that we're living are in fact good for you. Chocolate ice cream. Great. And I'm including in chocolate ice cream variants of chocolate ice cream, chocolate-based <laughs> ice creams <laughs> okay. of all kinds. Okay. The chocolate-based ice cream category. Like a chocolate chocolate brownie or a, you know. Yeah. Um, That's all protected in this umbrella. Don't worry. Thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a, I'm, I mean, I know that you already said a particular burrito from the mission. But I will say a carne asada burrito from El Taco Loco, which recently burned down. Oh, no. I know. Um, And a nice, perfectly ripe cherimoya. Ooh. I didn't know that that was a fruit until... uh, just maybe five years ago, um, I, Steve Agee and I uh, had been hanging out a lot, and um, I 
he lives on Chirimoya. I don't know if it's okay for me to say that, but Steve, I really hope you're okay with me revealing the name of a street. Listen, guys, he may not live on it anymore. Um, and uh, and and I blew his mind by like seeing a Chirimoya in a grocery store and realizing that it was something that could be consumed. Chirimoyas are so good. Yeah, they're, they're really good. I don't know how I never had been, I just never been exposed to one before. Well, they only grow in certain conditions, and they don't travel that great, and their their window of ripeness is pretty narrow, and they're and it really matters whether they're ripe or not. But they grow like in like I want to say it's like Santa Barbara area. Like there's an area mm-hmm. near Southern California that is the right mix of temperatures, not too cool, not too hot, the right humidity to grow cherimoyas, which are yeah. native to Peru or something like that. Um, so there's like a guy that has them one month out of the year at the farmer's market by my house. And I like yeah. ate some and I was like, oh my God, why did no one tell me about Cherimoya, AKA the custard apple? Exactly. <laughs> it is the custard apple. Yeah. It is the custard apple. Okay. That's great. All right. So great there. Uh, now give me three places. Let's do three non-reality-based places that it would be fun to have a vacation home. So that could mean Endor. It could mean just under the sea. I don't mean that in a Little Mermaid way, but if you want it to be, it can be. Uh, or, you know, outer space or... You God, know, I'd love to Hogwarts, fuck a mermaid. Any of those. <laughs> um, there will be a category for that. Don't worry. Okay, good. Um, I'm going to say... Well... I mean, this obvious, but next door to the Playhouse, Pee Wee's Playhouse. Great. I mean, I don't want to be too on the nose about old Jesse Thorne here, but um, uh-huh. <laughs> that's a pretty easy one. Um, mm, what else do I actually care about besides <laughs> Pee Wee? <laughs> Trying to think of anything else that I like <laughs> besides my children, my wife, and Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> um, let's say at Candlestick Park, the now imploded right. baseball stadium, uh, baseball multi-use stadium in San Francisco. Yeah. And then I got to come up with a third one here. Um, Listen, if you want to, if you want to uh, take one for the team and pick something that you know that the wife and/or children, as aforementioned, would enjoy, uh, feel free to do that. Okay, merry old land of Oz. There you go. That's all my six-year-old daughter talks about <laughs> at all. <laughs> Just, all the, and she always time. calls it the merry old land of Oz. She never says Oz. <laughs> I want you to know that I have very little room to write on this mash pad, and I did write the merry old land of Oz. I did not write Oz. I thank, absolutely did not write Oz. Thank goodness. And also, I yeah. mean, the uh, the only other option is my wife just sent me a picture of my three-year-old with blue sort of paddles of paper. Like they look like like ping pong paddles, maybe a little longer mm-hmm. than ping pong paddles, taped to his hands and feet. <laughs> sort of like weird blue flippers. Like a manatee? Yeah, very much like a manatee, <laughs> but he's not a manatee. Uh, the quote that my wife shared with me is him saying, I'm a blubby. <laughs> so yeah, I guess. Damn bl- right he is. He's a blubby. Blubland? <laughs> it's another option, but let's go with the Merry Old Land of Oz. 
Okay. I'm a blubby. That's a wonderful. Uh, okay. This feels like a, a real weird um, sequitur that I am not proud of, but uh, we have been speaking of your lovely wife, uh, who I also know and can account for as being lovely in every way. Uh, however, this is a mash game. Traditionally, one names three uh, alternate universe could be like sexy times, could be like alternate universe uh, wifey types, could be uh, mm-hmm. suddenly you're gay and these are the people you're gay for, um, mm-hmm. but just kind of alternate universe uh, exciting romance times. And it can be also fictional characters. I don't, it doesn't need to be like Natalie Portman. Right. Um, uh, Elisa Loeb, who I've met in real life. <laughs> <laughs> and I was very uncomfortable the whole time. <laughs> I hear you. I want to be clear that I was never like uh I was never like obsessed with Lisa Loeb or anything as a teenager, but she definitely was my teenage celebrity crush. Understood. Understood. Um and she's still spectacularly beautiful, God bless her. Um There you go. Uh I'm and and a good thing too because our mutual friend Matt Belknap was legitimately obsessed with Paula Abdul as a teenager, <laughs> and then like Paula Abdul reemerged as the crazy Paula Abdul of American oh, that's Idol. That's right. And he was like, that's ooh. Right. Whereas Lisa Loeb makes nice children's me. music that people enjoy. That's right. That's yeah, right. In fact, my children have enjoyed it. It's very. She does a great job. Well, um, Bravo, Paula. Laura Linney. Right. Why do I have a crush on I Laura agree. Linney? I don't know, but I have ever since. Oh, I love. Maybe Laura you can Linney. count on me. On Is that weird? Uh, well, yeah, that was. I mean, listen, she's when when the term true grit was invented, they didn't know that they were defining Laura Linney, but in fact, they were. Yeah. Like she's just like tough and sexy and vulnerable and. You get. I mean, she's an actress, so she could just be pretending to be incredibly smart. But you know, she can't. You can't pretend to be that smart. You just are. I'm. I'm gonna pick another real life person. I really should have gone the direction that you offered me of <laughs> picking like dudes. The damage is done. Or um, I want to be clear that I, I am thrilled to be married to my wife every day of <laughs> my entire life. That. She is the best person I know, and she's so beautiful. And I love her so much, but I think she knows that, and I think she also knows that I don't. I'm not. I don't actually care about my celebrity crushes at all. So, I think. Um, I think that's fair to say. I'm. A, I'm very. I have very low investment in my relatively in my celebrity crushes. I. I find it confusing that other people are like really into celebrity crushes. That's um, right. But I will also. I will add to the list Gina Davis. Great. Who I have also met in real life. <laughs> yeah, and she's supposed um, to be great. Like, yeah, she just delivered full Gina Davis. She is so cool and smart, and great. also like, um, I mean, I guess she must be fifty-five or sixty. Uh, she she had a whole like the Gina Davis that I have a crush on. I think was like in her thirties. Uh, yeah, in the '90s when when I when I was a teen, um, yeah. But anyway, uh, she's so cool, and she is she is also notably beautiful, but like also like real like grown up and tough because she's a, almost became an Olympic archer and everything. Uh, yeah, like she's a complete uh, real life Zena. 
I yeah. think is what we've what we've established. Uh, I think that's a great choice. Okay, let's do three. This is a sort of three alternate universe careers, uh, but it's like only the fun part. So you can just cast aside your knowledge of what being a grown up and having a career actually entails and just revert to something that like theoretically sounds really fun. Yeah, well, baseball player. Great. That one's that one's sort of an obvious one. Mm-hmm. Um, actual comedian. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not comedy adjacent. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I know a lot about that, Janet. And so I am casting aside a ton. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was going to say... You're really um, playing the game, and I appreciate that, and I thank you. Yeah, um, and I'm going to say, like, uh, underwater scientist. Great. Great. But in my mind, I want to be clear, in my mind, mostly what underwater scientists do is point at brightly colored fish. <laughs> While wearing Nothing those so kind of messy like, as marine biology. Yeah, I'm picturing like my image of underwater scientist is basically supporting character in the Wes Anderson movie about the yes, hundred you know percent life aquatic, yeah. life aquatic, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. But it would be yeah. better than the life aquatic, which is probably my least favorite of his films. <laughs> well, there you go. But it would have uh, the fish, and you would point at them, and you'd wear the the oval shaped mask. Yeah. And then and and pleasant uh, Mark Mothersbaugh music is playing in the background. It's 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 a sort it has a sort of film strip quality. I'm in there. I'm I'm right there. Yeah, and there'd be a couple um, of real funny Bill Murray parts. Yeah, yeah, a couple, a couple, yeah, a couple um, moments. Uh, okay. Next one is uh, let's since we just talked about um, the, the well now I have the ship in my head from the movie, but uh, three alternate forms of transport where you, it, mm-hmm. th- this is the way that you get around, and it could be fantastical or it could just it could be like you know reality based. First of all, if Wes Anderson is listening now, I'm scared that he thinks I don't like him. I want no. Wes- I think you just said that that was your least favorite, which makes okay. it sound like you have a, a list of favorites, which shows that you like them. Yes, it is his le- my least favorite of his, and I enjoyed it. So that's the. But well, wait, the floor. seriously? But like, dar- wait, but the Darjeeling Darjeeling Limited is falls higher on the list for you than Life Aquatic? Yeah, because it had that luggage in it. Oh, the luggage! No, I seriously yeah. like. I really liked. I liked Darjeeling Limited a lot more than a lot of other people did. That was right around when I was like, I guess I'm all in on this Wes Anderson shit because uh, right, right, I'm right. into it. I get I get a yeah. kick out of it every time. Yeah, I do. I love the Life Aquatic, but I but I think that there was something about well, you know what? For me, the fact that Kate Blanchett was in it and the Su Jorge uh, David Bowie soundtrack, those things like made a very uh, large imprint on my precious, uh, slightly younger heart. Um, okay. Oh yeah. So uh, traveling by traveling by three modes of transportation. Three modes of transportation. Hmm. I mean, it could be like pneumatic tube, or it could just be like Vespa, you know. Yeah, right. No, I'm I'm taking this very seriously. I really appreciate it. Not just a scooter, but that kind of scooter that has a cool roof on it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do know, and uh, it's not funny the kind that looks just... like you should be. T- 
which I want to be clear about this, not the kind that looks like you should be traveling around current day Bangkok, but the right. kind that looks like you should be traveling around 1960s Florence or something. Like the kind yeah, where the roof yeah. looks looks like an awning. Yeah, I was going to say that it for like when you said that I just imagined picking up the Hollywood bowl and sort of sticking it onto a a a, <laughs> a, 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 a cute hipster scooter from the 60s. Yeah, that's that's uh, pretty much exactly where I'm at. I went ahead and called it a roof scooter, so that cool. just implies that you're scooting along roofs, but whatever. Um it's fine. and then two more. Uh roller skates disco style. Yeah. God, I'd love that choice. I think about learning to do that once a week. Cuz there's this place that does that in Glendale maybe <laughs> somewhere mm-hmm. not that far from my house. I drive I used to drive past it on the way back from the doctor and uh-huh. I would I can't remember what it's called. It's called like roller lights or something. And every time I would see it I would think I bet I could just go there and some like live 60 year old gay African American guy would be totally down to teach me to like roller skate backwards and do the hustle and roller skates. Like he'd yeah, be just, he'd just be right. stoked to have somebody that likes this thing that he worked so hard to get great at. <laughs> sort of like an, yeah. like, like a, what I imagine would happen if I showed up to a model railroad club. <laughs> Now, listen, now you're speaking my language. I could get deep, deep into that. Like some old dudes would just be like, oh, yeah, let's teach him. One yeah. of us, one of us. One of fresh us. blood, fresh blood. Yep. They'd be like, if oh, it helps yeah. when we die, you can consume our car- carcasses. <laughs> okay, so for quad roller skates disco style, uh, scooter with a roof on it, and uh, Jaguar coupe from the 60s that's Great. that's like a dream car i was i was at the peterson automotive museum the other day and they mm-hmm. had one of those uh, i can't remember what the model is an xkr or something like that um and it's like the kind of you know like the kind of car twiggy would drive yeah i was gonna ask you if harold in harold and ma drove that car because it's something similar if it's not a jaguar coupe do you want to know something crazy I've never seen Harold and Maude. Oh. Isn't that weird? No, I mean, I, you're not You're not the only person. I mean, it surprises me in, only in the sense that um, it, I, went to I, I do feel school. like you would have stumbled across it, across it, across it, really, Janet? Stumbled across it? Uh, that you would have stumbled across it just by virtue of someone else in your cadre being like you have to see this it's my favorite movie well i mean Um, janet you're literally talking to a guy whose favorite movies are peewee's big adventure rushmore (laughs) and a thousand clowns i know like how could i not have seen harold and maude you've been circling it all your life you've been circling it all your life it's one of those things where i got in this position where i hadn't seen it and then i got too old to gain anything from seeing it reputationally all I have left is that I haven't seen it. You know what I mean? I like, do. I it went if it would, way I past if it would discovery and into cliche and then beyond yeah. cliche for me to see it. Like I yeah. became too self-aware. I understand. But I, I really recently do. purchased it on VHS where, and I have a TV VCR at my cabin and I'm going to watch it. That, watch pl- it. that pleases me. That pleases me. I think you'll still, 
I think it'll still do something for you. Yeah, I think I'll enjoy it. It's it's pretty terrific. Um, okay, uh, tell me now. I'm gonna do uh, a little. You know, I gotta do my little swirl that allows me to discern what you ended up with. Um, mm-hmm. So this is just a short spurt of like you tell me when to stop uh, right now. Okay, um, keep going, keep going. Weep, whoop, weep, whoop, weep, whoop, stop. Okay. Uh, I, I, I listen, rather than making making you guys pause and making me pause and making these separate files have to be recalibrated, recal- I am going to ask you really quickly while I do this to um, just uh, tell people like something that you're excited about or like, a, you know, a podcast, what's going on at Maximum Fun, things that you want people to know about. Um, just oh, one second. Yeah, sure. I just okay. finished. Yeah. The, I just finished the summer run of a podcast called The Turnaround where I interview interviewers about interviewing. And I interviewed everyone from Katie Couric to Larry King to Terry Gross to Ira Glass. And it was a really amazing experience for me, a guy who's been doing interviews multiple times a week since he was 19 years old, but also had never had any training or even mentorship in that department. I just made it up completely by myself to compare notes with all these brilliant geniuses of the craft. So if you want to hear Werner Herzog say what his favorite sitcom is, or if you want to hear (laughs) Errol Morris scream at me, an interview? I don't even know what the fuck that is. Oh, no. (laughs) In a friendly way. He's a really sweet guy. Um, then you can listen to my show, The Turnaround. It's only, there's 16 episodes and they're all, you know, 45 minutes or an hour long and they're all up and available right now in your favorite podcatcher. I think that's uh, very exciting. And uh, I might have to go ahead and dive into that. And I don't, typically, I'm very bad at listening to my friends' podcasts because all I want to do is say words back to them. Right. (laughs) In the most, like, cliche way. Like, it's like, I guess that's narcissism right there. I don't mean it to be, but... It's fr- it's frustrating. It's I can do it no problem if I don't know the person. But if it's if, if anyone involved is someone I know, I feel like I'm entitled to participate. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. So this is going to be a real nightmare for me, but I'm going to suffer through it because I love this concept and you are a tremendous interviewer and those are all legends. So um, that's a that's a really really great. That's got to be great, guys. You got to check that out. Um, I have your uh, results. I say as if you've taken a blood test. Um, you, I think you're to be pleased with these mash results. I can tell you right now, the idea of you cruising around in your 1960s era Jaguar coupe <sighs> while you sit, uh, while while sitting shotgun is Curtis Mayfield, and you guys are discussing your latest project together. Oh hell yeah! I mean, yes. that's not the worst thing in the world. Balling um, out of control. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, but also, listen, you really know how to make this guy laugh because uh, in addition to you you doing this this uh, project with Curtis, you are also a fantastic real-life comedian. Putting oh, wow, a real-life comedian? horrible truths, all the horrible truths that you know that come along with that. Yeah, but also, I, you know what? I'm, just, I'm unfiltered. I speak truth to power. That's right, People love it. me because I lo- they love to laugh. Thank you for your bravery and service. You're welcome. Uh, 
Um, now, when you get back from a gig or from uh, working with Curtis, uh, I want you to know that you can pull right up to your house next door to Pee-wee's Playhouse. Oh, shit, yeah! What's up, Globy? Go- oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Gorge on chocolate ice cream. Oh, fuck. With Dude, your Pee-wee's alternate- Dude, probably y- making it into a parfait right now. <laughs> that dude loves parfaits. And this is all happening with who I consider to be the best companion for the world I've described, which is one Gina Davis. I mean, she knows how to handle herself at Pee Wee's Playhouse. You know what I mean? Oh, uh, with Elan, that's how she handles herself Ex- in Pee Wee's Playhouse. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Jesse, thank you so much for doing the podcast. I, I, you were one of the very first people I asked to do it when I started doing Boys of Summer, and we just hadn't had a chance to make it happen. And I'm so glad that we finally did, even if it did have to happen when we were like really t- maybe 10 minutes as the crow flies. Unfortunately, neither of us are crows, so I can say 25 minutes. Well, Jana, thank you so much for inviting me, and uh, thank you very much for uh, not only your role in my career, which we left unmentioned, but also as my former employer uh, many years ago, but uh, also thank you for being one of our most beloved guests on uh, my podcast, Jordan, Jesse, Go, many times over the more than 10 years that we've been doing that show. I love that podcast. I, I I don't know if I voiced enough my sound approval and agreement with your uh, assessment of the quality that is uh, Jordan Morris, but he is a wonderful person, and I couldn't agree with you more on all counts of just his various talents and his hardworkingness. Um, you know, you know who listens so. to Jordan Jesse go for real? Like he tweets at me about it every week. Who? Steve Agee. Yeah, he does. Listen, it all comes back to him. I look forward to being beat up by him for mentioning uh, a street name that he probably doesn't even live on anymore. I mean, this was years ago, everybody. Years ago. Um, Bad news, Janet. uh, He bought that whole street with his Guardians of the Galaxy 2 money. Oh, God. Oh, God. This is a colossal mistake. Uh, Spaceman Steve bought all the houses. Let everyone everyone knows he's a real estate mogul. Um, I do ask my male guests, and I, I don't expect you to know it off the top of your head, so I don't know how we're going to do this, but uh, because I know that your taste in music doesn't lean towards the um, like middle-aged person in the 80s listening to it anyway uh, genre, but Don Henley has a song called Boys of Summer. Um, I do ask if my guest has any vague memory at all of what that song sounds like to try to uh, sing a snippet of it. And I I know that you already said that you didn't have any musical talent. That's not really what this is about. Janet, I you're right. This is the outside of the fact that recently I've been kind of into Steely Dan. This is the mm-hmm. f- furthest thing from my musical tastes. <laughs> it really is. However, it really is. Oh. My <gasps> friend Gene. When we were in college, who co-hosted The Sound of Young America with me and Jordan, was his only musical interests were two songs, one of which was Don't Stop Believing" by Journey, before that became a whole thing, long before yep. that became a whole thing. Yep. Long after it was a whole thing and long before it became a whole thing mm-hmm. again. <laughs> and The Boys of Summer by Don Henley, <laughs> which goes something like... <laughs> 
after the boys of summer have gone. That is precisely right. And I thank you for your service once again, my friend. I thank you for your service. Always glad to be of assistance. Uh, Oh, man. Guys, I will talk to you next time on the podcast. Jesse, you are uh, on the social medias. You have a wonderful network um, filled with wonderful things, uh, all of which I hope to continue to be more of a part of. And, uh, and, uh, and guys, I will talk to you next time on the podcast. As always, the JV Club theme song is Back Before We Were Brittle by the amazing Say Hi. Now leaving Nerdist.com.